All right, this is Biblical Grace Lesson 1. And I wrote these lessons a couple years ago to, to bring about a more balanced understanding of grace because in these last days we're dealing with what the Bible in the Revelation calls the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and also the doctrine of Balaam. They're both the same doctrine for the most part. They both use the grace of God to sin. Uh, Jude calls it changing the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And so because of that, it's hard to even preach normal grace because this, this defiled doctrine of hypergrace has been so widely propagated. If I say biblical grace, people have been conditioned to think sin and the liberty that comes uh, with sin or this liberty to sin. And so I said, I'm going to write a curriculum that looks at the Bible and its doctrines of grace. And so you can't just cherry pick. So anybody who's out there cherry picking doctrine or cherry picking scripture to build a sin based doctrine of grace, we can shut them up or confront them or confound them. As I teach and as we have to understand as Christians, you can't just study one facet of any doctrine. Any doctrine in the Bible is comprised of multiple facets based on Scripture. And if all you ever do is, is focus on one or two verses, one or two cherry-picked verses to build your doctrine on any subject, you're going to have an unbalanced understanding, an unbalanced doctrine. You're going to be in error, which is the most polite way of saying it. Uh, the worst way of saying it is you're going to be apostate or a heretic. And so with this common uh, doctrine right now of hypergrace, what we call hypergrace because it's, it's grace in excess, it's grace to sin, it's Jude's prophecy of changing the grace of God into lasciviousness. Jude, by the way, said only the preachers would do that. The heathen, they sin anyway, but it would be the preachers that come in, certain men crept in unawares that will change the grace of our God into lasciviousness. It's because of that that we have to come back and say, well, let's look at all the scriptures that deal with grace so we can understand this doctrine. If all you ever do is focus on one or two verses, you don't have a diamond. You have a piece of plate glass. It takes 50-something facets to make a real diamond. That's your, your, your typical cut. And so as many, if, you got to find as many scriptures as possible to back up your doctrine. So we're going to study grace for the next few weeks. Lesson one is entitled, What is the Grace of God? Ephesians 2.5 is our first verse. Uh, Even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Hallelujah. It is by the grace of God we are saved. 2 Timothy 2.1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So number one, we're saved by grace. Number two, we're commanded to be strong in that grace. Well, how can you be strong in something that you know nothing about? And if he commands you to do something, it, it behooves us. We're mandated to go research it. Just like if your boss said, I want this built, it's now your responsibility to go learn what it means to build it, how to build it, what it takes to build it. Sometimes in America, we think everything should be done for us, and we forget that there's a large part of our life is self-education and bettering yourself and getting around those who have pioneered something before you. I remember when I was in geology, I took a summer class called X-ray diffraction. And that is where we use an X-ray diffractor with a gamma source of radiation to do X-ray spectrography. And what we did with that is we, you grind up any mineral and you put it into a powder and you run it through this little glass pipette and you produce, you, you run gamma radiation through it, or maybe it's beta, I can't remember, and it would produce a pattern on a powder camera, blah, 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 blah. And so my final, this, this was supposed to be just an eight-week course in the summer of 96 
This thing started before school got out in the spring, and it ran into the first week of classes in the fall. This was like a 12-week class, and it took, I was actually in the labs more for that class than I was working a full-time job. So, and it was only a three-credit hour class, so it was like, oh, you're kidding me. This is, this is, this is insanity. This is sadism. But my final, my final was a chunk of what I'd later determined to be Bayrite, and, uh, and all the instruction was you come in for your final. Only two people can take the class at a time. So you come in, there's a hunk of bayrite, which is a mineral. And he said, tell me what you can about this. What kind of final is that? What do you even want from me? And so at that point, you have to go begin to do research on your own. When you're in college, you're supposed to be smart enough to go figure out things for yourself. And we were, well, we were supposed to do thin sections and all this stuff. Sometimes as Christians, we just assume everybody's going to do it for us. And we should be educated enough to know that we have to continue our own education. And if you're waiting for somebody to come and do for you, then you're like the lame man at the pool, Bethesda, who's always complaining, I have no man. And we'll often complain to Jesus Christ, I have no help. And it's so ironically perverse that we would complain to Jesus that we have no help when Jesus is our help. And for that simple fact alone, every one of us is without excuse. You cannot say, I cannot get better. Because we have the man, Christ Jesus. And so if we have the man, Christ Jesus, we have all the answers we need when it comes to scriptures. So tying that back here, it says we're saved by grace. You don't have to understand that to get saved. Because when heathens get saved, when you and I got saved, we knew nothing about nothing except that we were severely convicted and we needed God. You'll spend the rest of your eternity learning what that happened and how that meant and et cetera. But now it comes along, and now we're in in 2 Timothy. We're a little bit more mature, and Paul is telling Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's like the hunk of bearite. What am I supposed to do with this? Start finding out. It's a command that we're not excused from. Every one of us must grow in the grace of God. That grace is in Christ Jesus. It was there when we got born again, but we were an infant. So we didn't know the full potential. But now that every one of us in here is a little bit older in God, we ought to be seeking God, self-educating, seeking out people, asking Jesus for help. Ultimately, to, to get the Bayright exam done, I asked Dr. Limer, which I'm still friends with, what am I supposed to do here? You don't know? I'm asking you. What am I supposed to do here? And he actually walked me through it. And we actually got to work on that final an hour before, well, midnight before it was due. That was an all-nighter in the lab, which was miserable. But if I had asked him earlier, how many of us wait to the last minute? How many of us wait to calamity to ask for help? How many of us wait till there's a storm or there's hell in a teacup in our life before we say, Lord, I need grace? And what does it even mean? We, we wait too long. We, we dilly-dally. Hebrews 13, 9, for it is a good thing that the heart be established in grace. So now this is even advancing further. You're saved by grace. You are commanded to be strong in grace. Now you're commanded to be established in it. These are two of the 10, uh, excuse me, 1,050 New Testament commandments. To be strong in grace, that's a command. To be established in grace, that's a command. And they're, they're both dependent upon each other. You can't be strong without being established, and you'll never be established without being strong. But these are just some examples of these verses I want to use to kick off this lesson on, on grace, because every one of us, we ought to be growing in the grace of God. And when we understand what grace is, you'll understand your life ought to be improving. Your life ought to be getting better. You ought to be overcoming fears, insecurities, uh, ill decision-making. 
And we're not called to stay the same. There's no weakness in our life that we can't overcome by the grace of God. There's no weakness, no insecurity, no weird upbringing, no mindset that can't be changed, no sickness that can't be overcome, no poor relationship that can't be fixed. But that requires us to do something. And that's why people would rather listen to the hyper grace message of I can live any way I want to and grace covers it. No, no, no. No, grace comes so you can run away from sin, get the victory and be a different person. When the grace of God really operates in our life, we look more like Jesus, not more like Johnny Pagan. Or Henry, Henrietta Heathen. Johnny Pagan and Henrietta, <laughs> Peter Pagan and Henrietta Heathen. I like that. We'll start preaching those two hellbound folks. Grace is one of the greatest things to be desired, sought out, and obtained by a Christian. Yet the definition and concept of grace is often elusive and hard for some Christians to pinpoint. That's why we're going to study this. We need to know what the grace of God is and how to take advantage of it if we are to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and have our hearts established in grace. So we have to study this. And once we're done here in this next several weeks, I think we'll, run, we'll have a better understanding of grace and we'll realize when, when, when we understand the demand grace puts on us, we won't stay the same. Grace never comes to stay the same. Great, in a sense, grace is like a lubricant that makes your life move forward. You don't lubricate something for it to never move. You don't put oil in an engine to never use the engine. You know, you don't lubricate the door hinges for, to never open them. You lubricate the door hinges because you're opening them and they're squeaking all the time. Uh, when we're done here, we're going to see this grace of God that saved me from hell. It's continuously wanting to change me. You know, you got born again to change you. So you're translated from darkness into the kingdom of light or out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And that grace is supposed to be perpetually working in our life, changing us. So people around us ought to be able to see changes in our life. People around us ought to be able to see us becoming more bold, more confident, more lovely. Whatever your weird cultural, familial idiosyncrasy is, the grace of God will polish that out. Some people are too brash. Grace will tone that down. Some people are too timid. Grace will raise that up. Some people are too fearful. Grace will put courage. Too, some folks are too outgoing. Grace will kind of tone that down. Some people are too sad. Grace will make it happy. Some people are just giddy idiots. Grace will kind of make a severity come upon them. <laughs> yeah, because grace makes us all more like Jesus. Jesus is the mainstay. He is the, he is the type. He is the shadow. He is the fulfillment of both. He is the center. He is the standard. And all of us are scattered everywhere else on the chart. And the more we get in the grace of God, the more we start to come into focus and centered. We're never going to be just like Jesus in this body but we can start to be more like him and be changed more and more into his image. All right, so let's define grace. Amen, thank God is right. God's grace can be found in both Old and New Testaments. Though this is technically by theologians called the dispensation of grace, grace is found in the Old Testament too because grace is one of those immutable qualities of God. It does not change. It is not just limited to the church age. The Bible says specifically that Noah, Moses, Gideon, and others obtained grace from the Lord, which is awesome. Because how do you get grace? He gives grace to the humble. Well, there's always been humble people, and there's always been prideful people. So as long as there's humility, there will be grace. So grace is a, a trans-testament quality of God. It, it runs through both Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament.
They, they did this through humility. Grace is only given to the humble. God resists arrogance. Likewise, you can be a born-again New Testament child of God and have no grace working in your life because of pride. I think James spoke from experience. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Hebrew word translated grace is this, to find favor in the eyes of someone, to be precious, acceptance, to find charm or to be charming. So when you think about the Old Testament word for grace, the Lord is saying, you, when he gives you grace, he's saying, you found favor in my eyes. When somebody walks in humility and is kind to you, you'll automatically give them favor, right? We, that's just human nature because it comes from God. Even the pagans, even Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath. If you can just be charming and lovely and not so opinionated and not so me firster or so arrogant, even the pagans will give you favor. They'll give you grace. But you can be born again, spirit-filled, and think you're the cock of the walk, which is a rooster term, you know, strutting around the farmyard like you're something. And even the Christians will reject you and say, that's an arrogant idiot. I want to have nothing to do with them. Ecclesiastes says, if the spirit or the attitude of your ruler be incensed against you, hold your peace, for yielding pacifies great anger. Sometimes if we just quit justifying ourselves and just shut our mouth and quit trying to make excuses, and sometimes a simple yes, ma'am, would put the fire out. Sometimes a simple yes, sir. Anytime you say when your boss or your leader or whoever that is is mad at you and your mouth says more than yes, sir or no, sir, you're automatically in pride. And you're not going to get humility or, excuse me, grace or favor out of that boss or ruler because they're in charge. They know what excuses sounds like. And every one of us is heavily addicted to excuses because it's called self-justification. It doesn't work in the eyes of God, won't work in the eyes of a good leader. Uh, Pastor John Osteen used to say, just shut up and plead guilty. <laughs> that will get you help. You come in, you say, I broke it. I broke it really good. And I want to be the first to report it. No excuses. I fell asleep on the job. I fell asleep at this. Your boss is going to say, oh, wow, let's fix it. But if it's broken and you won't fess up to it and you start making excuses, you're probably going to get fired. Because this thing works both in the spiritual and in the natural. All right. So grace in the Hebrew means to find favor, to be precious. That's awesome to think that you walk in humility. God finds that precious. In fact, 1 Peter 3 says to have a quiet and meek spirit, which is in the eyes of God of great value. Being that, that doesn't mean your mouth doesn't run. That just means your heart is soft and sweet. Some people can say nothing and be jerks. Some people, their mouth can run a mile a minute and be just as sweet as can be. So it's not about the outward. We know that. It's all about the heart. The Greek word translated grace means, and this is what we kind of rest on in the New Testament, this more full understanding. And number one, it's the Greek word charis. It's also we get the word charisma in the Greek and charisma in the English. Charis means goodwill, loving kindness, favor, Kindness which bestows upon one that which he has not deserved. Kindness which bestows upon one that which he has not deserved. So when you give grace to somebody, you're giving them something they don't deserve. That's why often, like in the Amplified, grace is translated unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. The Greek word for grace means cheerfulness. I like being around cheerful people. I like being around happy people. There's a time to weep, and we understand that. But you better have a good reason for being so sourpussed. 
<laughs> Death is acceptable. Laying off is accept- getting laid off is acceptable. Puppy dog got run over. That's acceptable. But, you know, if you, if you live there, you don't have grace working in your life. Cares also means joy. There's a time to be cast down. There's a time maybe the Lord might smite you through rebuke. You might be heavy. But then the Bible says in Hebrews 12, to make straight paths for your feet, lift up the feeble hands, strengthen the feeble knees. I don't get Christians that perpetually walk like the Easter Island head. I don't get that because there's no grace there. Because the root for grace is charis. It's joy. It's cheerfulness to rejoice. I don't get Christians who can't rejoice. Well, I do. I understand here's the reason some Christians don't, can't rejoice because they refuse to remove the burden God commanded them a thousand times to get rid of. So they're not just only heavy, they're heavy in rebellion. Like you won't let go of the sin God told you to let go of, and so you're still trying to march forward in God, and it's becoming an uphill battle. And, and no wonder you're so ugly looking, so sad looking, so depressed, because God himself is resisting you. You're insisting on trying to serve him without obeying him. He will, he will shut off the fountain of grace and your countenance will fall and you'll be just like Cain trying to worship God and he won't accept none of it. That may be the real reason why some Christians never smile or they, they act like they're, oh, I am happy. If we're still asking you 40 years later, why aren't you happy and you're still telling us you are, you may want to introspect with God. And say, Lord, okay, everybody says I'm not happy. Maybe I should really dig deep into my heart and figure out the root of this. Because I tell you, I go through hell quite often as a pastor. It's part of it. Like, we, like, we walk through the valley of the shadow of hell because that's pastoring. We have opposition, and yet we can still come through smiling because we, we serve God. If you serve God, you will smile. If you serve God, you will have joy. If you obey God, your countenance will break forth as the light. Even as the Lord told Cain, if you would do this joyfully in the Hebrew language, if you would do this joyfully, you would be accepted. But because you don't do this joyfully, you are rejected. You're not accepted. And sin lies at your door. So joy is such a critical thing. But it is the root word for grace, charis, charisma. Though we may not understand grace, if we are joyful and cheerful and are thriving, it is most assuredly working in our life. Joyful, cheerful, and thriving. If grace is on your family, your family thrives. If grace is on your business, your business thrives. Uh, You're just cheerful. Now, the second fruit of the Spirit is charis, joy. The joy of the Lord, which is your strength. Grace in your life will make you full of joy no matter the situation. Now, happiness comes and happiness goes, but you can maintain perpetual joy. The Bible even says of Jesus Christ on the cross, brutal, sadistic torture for the joy set before him. He could endure it. Now, if it's happiness you're looking for, if it's some kind of fleshy favor, some kind of fleshy satisfaction, yeah, you'll never go far with God. But if it's joy you're looking for, then you can have it. And because the joy of the Lord is not dependent upon anything straightening up outwardly. The joy of the Lord is dependent upon your walk with Jesus Christ and your obedience to him. And it goes cricket, cricket here on this Sunday morning. All right. Other definitions for grace. And this is from great men of God I've studied and listened to over the years. Dr. Barclay calls it heaven's help. Grace is just heaven's help. When heaven's helping you, you'll be happy. 
You ever try to lift something heavy and you're hurting and grunting and straining and pull the back muscle and then somebody comes along and helps you? Or even better yet, does it for you? That makes you happy. <laughs> Pastor Vaughn called it God's power working in and through you to accomplish what you cannot do yourself. That was Pastor Vaughn's definition. Dr. Barclay just summarized it. Heaven's help. <laughs> Amplified says unmerited favor. Uh, and I think it was Pastor Mark Brzee said, a special endowment for the task at hand. So that brings out a different facet of grace. We see from the original text that grace is favor given even when it is unmerited or undeserved. And you got to understand, when we were yet Christ's enemy, when we were yet God's enemy, Christ died for us. He gave us favor. When we mocked him, when we ridiculed him, when we were deserving of hell, maybe hell bound, maybe on the hell train, no breaks on, he gave us grace. It was unmerited and undeserved. Uh, just for the, the, the grace to serve in the local church, you don't deserve that, but God puts it on you to benefit his kingdom. The grace for me to do missions. I, I get to take a mission trip when the Lord graces me to. I don't do anything to deserve that or earn that. He just says, all right, now it's time for you to take a mission trip. Here's grace. That's, that's God. And so we ought to be seeking God more and more to walk in more grace so we get more of heaven's help. Now, the second you think you've got everything together, you will begin to dry up the fountain. It won't dry up overnight, but it's like, again, the, the, the gate begins to drop on that fountain or that dam where the water, the gate shuts and the water begins to dry up. The second you think you've got it all together, grace will begin to dry up. I, a lot of my preaching friends, we talk about when we have conversations that we, we have to come into the house of God in fear, reverential fear. Because the second we think, yo, God, I got this, uh, he just starts, he shut it off at the source. And the water's still trickling, but we don't realize that there's nothing behind that. Once this one runs past us, this, this gallon of water or grace, that's all that's left because we said in our heart, yo, God, I got this. I don't need your help this morning. I'm studied. I'm educated. I'm smart. And just like we talked last Sunday night, one of the most detrimental attitudes a Christian can take is, well, it's not my problem. It's not my fault. I'm not to blame. That's an attitude that shuts off grace. The other attitude is, I don't need to change. That one will shut off grace too. And so, all right, you can imagine like a flume of water, you know, like the flume that they do gold panning with. You drop that gate, the water shuts off, but there's still a tidal wave of water coming. So for a season, you still enjoy grace. And then all of a sudden you realize, er, er, and your life comes to a miserable screeching halt and you spend nine years with a frown or six minutes. Then you can repent and say, Lord, have mercy on me. He opens up the, the gate again, but you still got to wait because the water still has to roll downhill and hit you. And then you could arrogantly say, well, I got this, never mind, and shut it off again. And how many of us open the gate, shut the gate, open the gate, shut the gate. And so our life advances in sporadic seasons. And then we, and then we run real good. It's miserable. It's an inconsistent Christian. It's what I, Baptist church growing up, we called having highs and lows. What we were really saying is sometimes I'm prideful, sometimes I'm humble. But we churched it up. So it wasn't our fault, it was God's fault. Because religiosity could never take the blame. It's always God's sovereign doing. He's just sitting there at the gate saying, please, please ask for help. Please ask for help. Oh, this is going to hurt. Please ask for help. 
Somebody intercede for my knucklehead son. Ah, there's there's a little bit of humility. And whatever proportion of humility you walk in, that's how much grace you get. Little bit of humility, little bit of help. Lot of humility, lot of help. And he opens that slew. And I've learned by now, I'm an idiot without God. I can't function without God. I can't think without God. I can't make right decisions. I can't husband. I can't father. I can't lead. So it makes you walk around saying, and honestly, this a psychologist would tell you this is bad, but I walk around saying, Lord, I'm an idiot. That's not a pause. That's a bad faith confession, but it's, an, it's a humility thing too. Lord, I'm stupid. I need your help. What, have I, what was I thinking? Lord, don't let me mess this thing up because you have to have that help. The second you think you got it all together, if any man thinks he stands, let him take heed lest you fall. Most Christians, uh, many, too many, we'll say too many Christians, they spend most of their life falling. And they don't ever learn from their busted nose, busted teeth, skin elbows, skin knees. They never learn to stop and say, all right, Lord, where might I actually be to blame here? Where am I not truthfully obeying you? Because the grace of God is powerful enough and strong enough to take every family, every business, every, every Christian's life to a higher place. And if your life is not going to a higher place, it's not God's fault. It's not even the devil's fault. The devil is nothing. The devil is absolutely nothing. We cast that devil out a couple weeks ago. It's evident, nothing. So who's our worst enemy? Our own prideful heart. So it should cause every one of us to introspect, not listen to sermons and hear it for brother so-and-so or my wife or my husband, but to introspect. And as Corinthians 11 says, judge yourself, examine yourself, and be willing to go back and say, Lord, what's the last thing you told me to do that I've refused to do? What's the last thing you were telling me to do that I've not done? Because that might be the reason why the floodgate is dried up and I'm, I'm licking the sides of the flu <laughs> for water, for grace. All right, we see from the original text that grace is favor given even when it is unmerited or undeserved. And as something given, it must also by definition be received. But unfortunately, not every Christian knows how to receive grace. And if you do not know how to receive grace for yourself, you will not be able to give grace to others. We're supposed to be gracious towards one another. It means we give folks a pass when they do something ignorant. Uh, I find that the most graceless Christians are those that get offended so easily. And they, we, somebody says something, oh, they just hurt my feelings. Why would they say such a thing? That lets me know that Christian doesn't know much about grace because you'd have to realize, how much have I said that offended God? And yet he still gave me a pass. He still was good to me. He still allowed me to fellowship with him. Thank God the Lord doesn't stand with an angel in the flaming sword at the door and say, you offended the Lord on your way here. You can't come in. You offended the Lord all last week. You haven't been to church in a month. You can't come in. And yet we do that in our friendships, our relationships. They offended me, so we pull the flaming sword out and we just wave it like at a pack of wolves. Get back away from me. There's no grace there. There's no favor there. Big grown-up people, big people. We're mature enough to extend grace even to knuckleheads. And we give people the benefit of the doubt. They didn't know what they were doing. They're just half carnal. They're just barely saved anyway. I'm supposed to be the one with big boy pants on here. Let me help them. If you don't know how to receive grace, and again, we're just kind of building the foundation here so your heart will be hungry to receive more grace and an understanding of biblical grace. If you don't know how to receive it, you'll never be able to give it. If you can't give it, it'll be evident because you don't have many friendships. People with lots of friends, even the heathen can understand grace and giving people unmerited favor. 
And so Proverbs says, if you're going to have friends, you got to show yourself friendly. And when you have a lot of friends, you're going to have a lot of hurt to deal with because we hurt each other. Not even meaning to sometimes. Sometimes we're just forgetful. Nowadays, I think this culture is so sensitive. We get our feelings hurt over less and less and less and less things. Gone are the days where you could disagree and still be best friends. Gone are the days where you could argue with each other over politics or religion and still love each other and look at each other and say, I think you're an idiot. That's the dumbest political stance. Those days are gone. Now, if we disagree with you, we burn down your business or you burn down my business or you call me a hater. See, and the church has gotten bitten by that thing too. We get so offended. It's evident because now when we disagree with the preacher, we leave the church. That's immature. Used to, you'd stick around and support your pastor. Well, I love my pastor. He preached this sermon. Didn't make any sense to me. Uh, But what do I know? I love him. Like Pastor Vaughn used to say, why would you leave for the one thing you disagree with and not stay for the 99 that helped you? What immature hypocrisy. What immature, immature, immature hypocrisy. You leave over the one thing that you disagree with that you probably don't know what you're talking about. Because I've told somebody, I disagree with about 15 things out of the 100 that I say. And I go home and I say, why didn't I say that? That was dumb. I'm glad I didn't preach the fullness of that because I'm never touching that subject again. Why would you leave for one and not stay for the 99 that helped you? Immaturity. No grace. No real grace. We let you stay for the 99 things we don't like. (laughs) We, We let Alan stay for the 105 things I'm still trying to work on as pastor. And he just does seven things that I like. That's grace. Folks, folks have such a selfish American view of grace and mercy. All right, let's move on. Grace comes from Jesus Christ. John 1, 16 and 17 says, And of his fullness have all we received. Thank God we've received his fullness. And grace for grace. I'm not even really sure what it means, grace for grace. But to me, it just says a lot of grace, a lot of help. How about help for help? Heaven's help because you need heaven's help. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, coolly enough or neat enough, Jesus is the law. Because he he said, I am the word. Grace as a religious concept is uniquely or entirely unique to Christianity. No other religion has the concept of grace. This unmerited favor, this God not against you, this no, no works basis of salvation. You think about the Hindus. They got to make the right sacrifices in the right seasons. You have to worship the right God in the right times with the right offerings. Islam, we're all very familiar with Islam. There's no grace there. There's no, there's no grace to disagree. One of the arguments against Christianity is that, well, see, Christianity is no better than Islam. They kill people in the Old Testament. Well, if you study the arc of the Bible, it goes from violent to salvation. If you study the arc of the Koran, it goes from kind to violence. It ends with violence. We end with redemption. The Koran, the longer it goes, and as Muhammad's life goes on, got more and more violent. As he became more of a social parasite, he went in humbly, and as his people populated, then he began to bring the sword and bloodshed. Christianity began with violence because of sin and running out Canaan land, which they always like to bring up, and it ends with Jesus being killed to save all of man. Islam ends with, with uh, Muhammad killing his enemies. Christianity ends or really begins with Jesus Christ dying for his enemies. How can we say we're the same religion? Ignorant political blindness. It's a spirit. It's a demon. 
No other religion offers grace to its adherents. That is because all other religions are false. Hallelujah. And there's no salvation but by Jesus Christ and his grace. How about saving grace? Now, let's look at this briefly. The first work of grace that we need to understand is eternal salvation. Thank God we are eternally saved by grace. God redeeming us when we were unworthy and unable to redeem ourselves is a demonstration of unmerited favor and loving kindness. When you got saved, what did you have to offer to God in return? Nothing. What did you understand about it? Nothing. The Holy Ghost moved upon you, whether you were seven years old like me or 27 or 47, and you realized in an instant, God spoke to you out of mercy and said, you are dead without me. You are damned without me. And it wasn't a pleasant, feel-good experience. I don't know of any salvation experience that's a genuine one that was pleasant. I was seven and a half years old, almost eight, and I was terrified. And I, my, my heart failed me, and it was, I looked back, it was the Holy Spirit, and I said, I don't know who this Jesus is, but I better get him on the inside of me. I know that everything depends on this. There's a reality to it, because God isn't sugarcoating stuff. The American church today believes that God is a sugar dispensary. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The problem, and we talk about this among my preacher friends, that we talk about whatever happened to people just really getting saved. I got a Church of God buddy who does a lot of mission work, and he said, he told me, he said, brother, when I got born again, I got born again, and my life changed. We don't see that anymore because we're selling sugar sticks. We're selling Jesus Christ with rebates, and when he doesn't behave like we want him to, well, it's not love. Now, you're ignorant. You're ignorant. You don't know what love is. I've been working for a long time to put together a series of teachings called The Hard Mean Sayings of Jesus. The gospel of peace said, whoa, 25 times in the gospel. Not, whoa, you're so loving, dude. But, woe unto you, hypocrites, blind guides, Pharisees, brood of vipers, serpents, scorp, whoa. Gospel of peace said, whoa. As in, you're in big trouble. Not, whoa, that's a big lollipop. Here, I'd like you to have it. Welcome to the Hardy Krishnas. No, because, yeah. Some preachers are handing out lollipops like the Krishnas used to hand out flowers, if you're old enough to remember the hairy Krishnas. <laughs> they were all shaved, but they were called hairy anyway. The first work of grace that we need to understand is eternal salvation. God redeeming us when we weren't worthy or uh, unable to redeem ourselves is a demonstration of unmerited favor and loving kindness. This is the first work of grace in our Christian lives. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the grace of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So you can't work to do it. But the next verse says, for we are his workmanship. Who did the work? He did. We're his workmanship in Christ Jesus ordained unto good works. So we do do good works after he makes us. So we do need to maintain good works. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and come, come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. Didn't cost us anything. You were justified by his unmerited favor, by heaven's help. And unfortunately, many Christians, too many, they stop at the salvation experience and they never grow anymore. As dynamic as the born-again experience is, the same grace wants to continually work in our life till we go home. Whatever your biggest hole is in your life, if the grace of God can get you out of hell, the grace of God can repair that hole and get you out of that hole. 
If it's your marriage, the grace of God wants to provide heaven's help to fix your marriage. If it's your business, if it's your personal life, if it's your lack of discipline, if it's your timidity, if it's your fear, if it's your unforgiveness, the grace of God can fix all of that. Because the grace of God wasn't meant to just stop once you said, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I receive you. Jesus, I believe I'm born again. Hallelujah. And then you get water baptized. The grace of God is perpetually working in our life if we would receive it. And those that receive it, you can tell because they're changing. And those that don't, you can tell because they don't change. Amen. Titus 2.11. For, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. So we're talking about a saving grace here. We have more on, these less, on this and other lessons here, but we're just kind of laying a foundation. These verses show us how salvation is by grace. That is to say, we obtained favor of God when we did not deserve it, and he gave us heaven's help. It took heaven's help to get born again. It's the work of the Holy Ghost. Salvation cannot be earned. We know that. You're never going to be good enough. Grace cannot be earned. It is a freely given of God. This is the definition of grace. All you can do, if we're going to say earn grace, all you can do is say, Lord, help. And I don't know if help qualifies as an earning. Help is the cry of desperation. Help is the cry of humility. So you might could argue you earn it, but how do you earn it? You earn it by debasing yourself, by saying, Lord, I'm not good. I really wish we'd all recognize how good we're not. <laughs> And again, as I like to jab at us, we live in Cookville. What are we known for? Seventh poorest city in the nation, former meth capital of the country. That's what we're known for. We need heaven's help. Now, you may not be seventh poorest. You may not be a meth maker, but this is the region we live in. And yet our region's still so religiously prideful that now wonder God's not able to raise us up out of anything. The election of grace, we'll conclude with this, and really I could probably write... 10 or 12 lessons on the election of grace. But just, just to give you a synopsis, God selects people based on their humility, right? We saw that in James 4. He gives grace to the humble. This is what is called the election or the selection of grace. The Greek word is electos. It's where we get our word election or to elect, but it simply means to select. So when you select something, anything you select, there's always a basis of qualifications. When you go to the grocery store, you select meat based on the price, you select meat based on the cut. You select meat based on the expiration date. Maybe even by the provider, Tyson, Purdue, if you're thinking chicken, whatever. So there's a selection choice. I always like to think about a grade school dodgeball, which apparently we can't play anymore because it's too violent. But there was just something awesome about getting selected for the cool team and beaming the dorky team with ball, the ball in the face as hard as you can. And I think the teachers enjoyed it too. Because that was back in the day when teachers were teachers. I should say they were permitted to be teachers instead of baby care workers and brat raisers. Uh, they still want to do their job, but worthless parents prevent them. So <laughs> grace, there's a selection. God selects people based on grace in their life. So when you select somebody, you're looking for something. You talk about sports drafts. You're looking for something. We want you to, uh, what's it called, Gertie, when they do the, the, the combine? right? They want to see how well your scores at the combine. Like basically, it's a, a flesh fest, a flesh factory where they see what's your cape, how high can you jump, how fast can you run, what's your bench press, all this stuff. And so we want you. So there's a selection. There's still an election of grace, but by the fact that it's called the election or the selection of grace, we know what the qualification is God's looking for. It's not intelligence. It's not looks. 
It's not money. It's not pedigree. It's not the family you come from. It's the presence of grace in your life. Why did God choose Noah? Genesis 6 says, and Noah found grace in the eyes of God. He took, he took him and selected him because of grace, because of humility. And Moses said, now, Lord, if I have really found grace in thy sight, go with me. What, why did God choose Moses? Grace, humility. That's all he's looking for. He's not looking for your last name. He's not looking for the number of degrees you have. He's just looking for somebody humble enough to say, Lord, here am I. Many are called, but few are selected. It's the same Greek words. Few are chosen. Many are called, and he calls lots of people, but he's actually only able to pick a few for his team because even though you're called doesn't mean you're humble enough to be chosen to the God's elite squad, if we can use that term. Many are called, but only a few are chosen. If God resists the proud and only answers those that cry out to him, then humility is what is key to being picked by God. Romans 11, 5 and 6. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election or the selection of grace. So that lets me know that only a remnant of Christians walk in humility. That applies in every local church too. In every local church. Now maybe our remnant can be 60% of our church. I would hope so. I'd hope our remnant could be 90%. I'm not so foolish to realize I don't have a peripheral group in this church. Hopefully you're not part of that. But there's still a remnant based on humility. We, we can certainly look across America and see the true church is dwindling because folks are afraid. They're ashamed of God. When you're ashamed of God, he resists you. There's no grace there. We have whole denominations. God has nothing to do with them. It's very evident. We want to make sure that not just in our church, but in our own individual life, that we are selected according to grace. And maybe our heart should say, Lord, let me be a part of this remnant. Let my wife be your remnant. Let my, let my husband be your remnant. Let my kids be part of the remnant. May we walk with all humility and serve you. Lord, we need your help. Even when you think you got it all together, you still say, Lord, we need your help. May I not sin against you today. May I not violate you. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. So you can't work to be selected. It's humility. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. God's remnant people are those that hunger for him and cry out for him. This kind of heart is rewarded with abundant grace. Again, I can't emphasize enough. It's the heart that says, Lord, I'm lame. I'm, uh, my feet are, are crooked. I can't see. I'm blind. I'm halt. Lord, help me. He, the Lord severely judged the Laodicean church because they said, we are beautiful. We are rich. We are glorious. And Jesus said, you don't realize that you are blind. You are wicked. You are naked. You are puke worthy. Now, if they had come to the Lord saying, we are puke worthy, we are blind, the Lord would have exalted them. And so the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church, was not a remnant church. They were the church that made Jesus want to puke. But we have to say, Lord, no matter how rich I get, no matter how good looking my family might be, no matter how many degrees I might get, I still need you. Have mercy on me. God only selects people with grace on their life. All others are resisted until they humble themselves. That's why it's wicked to help people that are full of pride. Don't help prideful people. Pray for them and let them hit bottom. Nothing like a good splat to humble you. And sometimes we're more enablers than we are helpers. Helping and enabling are two totally different things. Sometimes you help people by letting them ruin their life. 
so they can humble themselves. But if you're always there to bail them out, God's not going to be able to. And you can't save them, Daddy. <laughs> Let us find grace. Amen. We'll stop there. That's the end of this first lesson. I hope you've learned something. We have several more weeks of this, and so we want to be changing by the grace of God. It's, a, it's an awesome thing, and it's one of my favorite subjects once I can get past all the sin that's being taught in the name of grace. Father, we thank you for Sunday school this morning. We thank you that we're born again. We're saved by grace through faith. May we honor you with grace. May we grow in the grace of the Lord. May our hearts be established in grace. Father, may we find that joy that grace demands in our life and that grace will deposit. May we walk humbly before you and be a part of the election of grace. Help us, Lord, and use us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have about 10 minutes before service starts.